Welcome to another episode of For Our Four Hour Journey. Today, a consideration of simple lifestyle, some anecdotes from my experience, and then Leo Tolstoy's short story, How Much Land Does a Person Need? Many years ago, Rook and I were discussing basic values as we were beginning to consider what life together might be like. One of my basic values was a simple lifestyle viewed within the framework of the teachings of Jesus, or so I thought. She asked what I meant by simple lifestyle. I started to explain in terms of principles, intentions, generalizations. She asked about practical applications. If I am with you in the U.S., will we have a stove? Well, yes, any residents will have a stove. I started to talk about savings of time as well as of money in the long run versus short-term expenses. She knew about that better than I. She was thinking of how much time it took to find wood in an area of ever-increasing deforestation, of the stress on married women whose duty it was in her culture to have a cooking fire each evening sufficient for a basic family meal. She asked for another example. How about a refrigerator? Having viewed myself as living a simple lifestyle for years before meeting her and always having a refrigerator where I stayed, her questions were making me a bit defensive. I started to justify this item as a qualified part of simple lifestyle when she asked for one more example. How about a car? Well, one can hardly survive in America without a car, I replied. Then we will be rich, she said very rich. Her family, the large majority of families in her home area, had had none of these items growing up. Undaunted by thoughts of living a simple lifestyle as I described it, she was also unimpressed by a basic reason I gave for living a simple lifestyle. I said that it nurtures a readiness to share with others rather than accumulate for self. To her, it was strange that I would see this as something in need of special consideration. It had been a way of life for her since childhood, and I am grateful to say it would remain a way of life for her. When married, we went to the States for her first time. I was about to start graduate studies. Checking out the university's apartments for families, one of her first questions was, is there hot water? person laughed. Of course, another luxury. Our income was below the American poverty level, but we had the objects she had asked about and sufficient food and clothing. And we could assume that when my studies were completed, it would be easier to pay for all this and more. And it was indeed. While we may have continued to live a simple lifestyle compared to many Americans, we lived a lavish one compared to the majority of people throughout the world. Clothing has filled our closets. Meat and fruits have often been on our table. Cars have been in our driveway. Awareness of the disparity has kept us from living in a house like the one considered in our last podcast, the house that whispers there must be more money. We have not lived as simply as possible, 
But we have at least resisted urges to indulge in a materialism where comfort, pleasure, and status become primary motivators of lifestyle. A common theme of those who have pursued what is best in life and called others to do the same is that the more simply one lives, the happier one is, the more one consents and respond to the divine, the most satisfying, the most essential part of our humanity. I think of four practices that have helped us in this regard, although we have not followed them to the degree possible. First, we have kept in contact with people having far less than us. If we know people who are having a hard time obtaining the basics of food, clothing, medicine, and education, it's easier to see the superfluity of luxury items and to forego some to help others. Second, we have practiced hospitality, though again, not nearly to the degree possible. One example of this, when we were in Kampala, an expatriate family with four young children had their home broken into. The parents were tied up until their house was cleaned out, the thieves threatening to kill the toddler who would not quit screaming. The family wanted to leave that place but did not have another to immediately move into. We invited them to stay with us. For several weeks, they all slept in one of our three bedrooms. Our six children slept in another and in the living room. We ate meals together. Later, the wife of a medical doctor with two children in a much bigger house told me that they had discussed taking the family in, but did not. They thought they did not have enough room until they heard that the family was with us. Before our marriage, Ruka had told me of a basic principle of hospitality. You always have enough for unexpected guests. It's just that the proportions of what you have to share may be smaller if you have little and larger if you have more. A third principle is that helping others is a basic category in our family budget, and we try to spend accordingly. The only thing we ever borrowed money for was our house, and we paid it off within a few years. Tolerating ugly carpet that came with the house, furnishing functionally, eating a lot of rice and beans, dressing plainly, and driving older cars. Doing so saved us tens of thousands of dollars in the long run and hushed the there-must-be-more-money whispering that can be in any household, regardless of income. The less we were concerned about non-essentials, the more we could appreciate essentials and be glad to share with others. Fourth, we listen, though with varying degrees of attention, to the voices since ancient times that call us to simplicity in view of the divine. In terms of the four R's, for our four-hour journey, the voices call us to revere the divine as expressed in humanity and nature, to pursue rightful relationships with and for all, to return to humility, compassion, and justice after falling into pride, selfishness, and greed, and to rejoice in beauty, goodness, and harmony. The goal of living simply involves the question of how much does a person need to live well? One answer to this is given by Leo Tolstoy in his short story, How Much Land Does a Person Need?, which I will now read. 
slightly abridged. An older sister came to visit her younger sister in the country. The older was married to a tradesman in town, the younger to a peasant in the village. As the sisters sat over their tea talking, the older began to boast of the advantages of town life, saying how comfortably they lived there, how well they dressed, what fine clothes her children wore, what good things they ate and drank, and how she went to the theater, promenades, and entertainments. The younger sister was irritated, and in turn put down the life of a tradesman, and stood up for that of a peasant, saying, I would not change my way of life for yours. We may live roughly, but at least we are free from anxiety. You live in better style than we do, but though you often earn more than you need, you are very likely to lose all you have. You know the proverb, loss and gain, siblings remain. It often happens that people who are wealthy one day are begging their bread the next. Our way is safer. Though a peasant's life is not a fat one, it is a long one. We will never grow rich, but we will always have enough to eat. The older sister said sneeringly, Enough, yes, if you like to share with the pigs and the calves. What do you know of elegance or manners? However much your husband may slave, you will die as you are living, on a pile of manure, and your children the same. Well, what of that, replied the younger. Of course our work is rough and coarse, but on the other hand it is sure, and we need not bow to anyone. But you, in your towns, are surrounded by temptations. Today all may be right, but tomorrow the evil one may tempt your husband with cards, wine, or women, and all will go to ruin. Don't such things happen often enough? Pahom, the master of the house, was sitting near the oven, and he listened to the women's chatter. It is perfectly true, thought he, busy as we are from childhood working on Mother Earth, we peasants have no time to let any nonsense settle in our heads. Our only trouble is that we don't have enough land. If I had plenty of land, I wouldn't fear the devil himself. The women finished their tea, chatted a while about clothing, and then cleared away the tea things and lay down for a nap. But the devil had been sitting behind the oven and had heard all that was said. He was pleased that the peasant's wife had led her husband into boasting and that he had said that if he had plenty of land, he would not fear the devil himself. All right, thought the devil. We will have a tussle. I'll give you land enough, and by means of that land, I will get you into my power. Close to the village, there lived a lady, a small landowner who had an estate of about 300 acres. She had always lived on good terms with the peasants until she engaged as her steward an old soldier who took to burdening the people with fines. However careful Pahom tried to be, it happened again and again that now a horse of his got among the lady's oats, now a cow strayed into her garden, now his calves found their way into her meadows, and he always had to pay a fine. Pahom paid up, but grumbled, and going home in a temper was rough with his family. All through that summer, Pahom had much trouble because of this steward, and he was even glad when winter came and the cattle had to be stabled. He didn't like to pay for the hay when they could no longer graze on the pasture land, but at least he was free from anxiety about them. In the winter, the news got about that the lady was going to sell her land, and that the keeper of the inn on the high road was bargaining for it. 
When the peasants heard this, they were very much alarmed. Well, they thought, if the innkeeper gets the land, he will worry us with fines worse than the lady steward. We all depend on that estate. So the peasants went on behalf of the commune and asked the lady not to sell the land to the innkeeper, offering her a better price for it themselves. The lady agreed to let them have it. Then the peasants tried to arrange for the commune to buy the whole estate so that it might be held by them all in common. They met twice to discuss it, but could not settle the matter. The evil ones sowed discord among them, and they could not agree. So they decided to buy the land individually, each according to his means, and the lady agreed to this plan as she had to the other. Presently, Pahom heard that a neighbor of his was buying fifty acres and that the lady had consented to accept one half in cash and to wait a year for the other half. Pahom felt envious, he thought. Look at that. The land is all being sold and I will get none of it. So he spoke to his wife. Other people are buying, he said, and we must also buy twenty acres or so. Life is becoming impossible. That steward is simply crushing us with his fines. So they put their heads together and considered how they could manage to buy it. They had one hundred rubles laid by. They sold a colt and one half of their bees, hired out one of their sons as a laborer, and took his wages in advance, borrowed the rest from a brother-in-law, and so scraped together half the purchase money. Having done this, Pahom chose out a farm of forty acres, some of it wooded, and went to the lady to bargain for it. They came to an agreement, and he shook hands with her upon it and paid her a deposit in advance. Then they went to town and signed the deeds, he paying half the price down and undertaking to pay the remainder within two years. So now Pahom had land of his own. He borrowed seed and sowed it on the land he had bought. The harvest was a good one, and within a year he had managed to pay off his debts, both to the lady and to his brother-in-law. So he became a landowner, plowing and sowing his own land, making hay on his own land, cutting his own trees, and feeding his cattle on his own pasture. When he went out to plow his fields, or to look at his growing corn, or at his grass meadows, his heart would fill with joy. The grass that grew and the flowers that blossomed there seemed to him unlike any that grew elsewhere. Formerly, when he had passed by that land, it had appeared the same as any other land. But now it seemed quite different. So, Pahom was well satisfied. And everything would have been right. If only the neighboring peasants would not have trespassed on his cornfields and meadows. He appealed to them most civilly, but they still did so. Now the communal herdsmen would let the village cows stray into his meadows. Then horses from the night pasture would get among his corn. Pahom turned them out again and again and forgave their owners, and for a long time he restrained from prosecuting anyone. But at last he lost patience and complained to the district court. He knew it was the peasants' lack of land and no evil intent on their part that caused the trouble. But he thought, I cannot go on overlooking it, or they will destroy all I have. They must be taught a lesson. So he gave them one lesson, and then another, and two or three of the peasants were fined. After a time, Pahom's neighbors began to resent this, and would now and then let their cattle onto his land on purpose. One peasant even got into Pahom's wood at night and cut down five young lime trees for their bark. 
Behom, passing through the wood one day, noticed something white. He came near and saw the stripped trunks lying on the ground, and close by stood the stumps where the trees had been. Behom was furious. If he had only cut one here and there, it would have been bad enough, thought Behom. But the rascal has actually cut down a whole bunch. If I could only find out who did this, I would make him pay. He racked his brains as to who could have done this. Finally, he decided, it must be Simon. No one else could have done it. So he went to Simon's homestead to have a look around, but he found nothing and only had an angry scene. However, he now felt more certain than ever that Simon had done it, and he lodged a complaint. Simon was summoned. The case was tried and retried, and at the end of it all, Simon was acquitted, there being no evidence against him. Pahom felt still more aggrieved and let his anger loose upon the commune head and the judges. You let thieves grease your palms, he said. If you were honest folk yourselves, you would not let a thief go free. So Pahom quarreled with the judges and with his neighbors. Threats to burn his building began to be uttered. So though Pahom had more land, his place in the commune was much worse than before. About this time, a rumor got about that many people were moving to new parts. Pahom thought, there's no need for me to leave my land, but some of the others might leave our village, and then there would be more room for us. I would take over their land myself and make my estate a bit bigger. I could then live more at ease. As it is, I am still too cramped to be comfortable. One day, a peasant was passing through the village and happened to stop at Pahom's house. He was allowed to stay the night, and supper was given him. Pahom had a talk with this peasant and asked him where he came from. The stranger answered that he came from beyond the Volga, where he had been working. One word led to another, and the man went on to say that many people were settling in those parts. He told how some people from his village had settled there. They had joined the commune and had had twenty-five acres per person granted them. The land was so good, he said, that the rye sown on it grew as high as a horse, and so thick that five cuts of a sickle made a sheaf. One peasant, he said, had brought nothing with him but his bare hands, and now he had six horses and two cows of his own. Pahom's heart kindled with desire. He thought, why should I suffer in this narrow hole if one can live so more well land. elsewhere? More land. More so Pahom moved more to the land. new place. His family was given the right to work three times as much land as they had before, and they could rent additional plots of land. But after three increasingly prosperous years, Pahom grew tired of having to rent other people's land every year and the hassle of arranging for it. Wherever there was good land to be had, the peasants would rush for it, and it was taken up at once, so that unless you were sharp about it, you got none. It happened in the third year that he and a dealer together rented a piece of pasture land from some peasants, and they had already plowed it up when there was some dispute, and the peasants went to law about it, and things fell out so that the labor was all lost. Pahom thought, if it were my own land, I would be independent, and there would not be all this unpleasantness. One day, a trader happened to stop at Pahom's place to get feed for his horses. He drank tea with Pahom, and they had a talk. The trader said that he was just returning from the land of the Bashkirs far away, where he had bought 13,000 acres of land, all for 1,000 rubles. Pahom questioned him further, and the trader said, All one needs to do is make friends with the chiefs. I gave away about a hundred rubles worth of cloth and carpets, besides a case of tea. 
and I gave wine to those who would drink it, and I got the land for a ruble an acre. And he showed Pahom the title deed, saying, The land lies near a river, and the whole prairie is virgin soil. Pahom plied him with questions, and the trader said, There is more land than you could cover if you walked a year, and it all belongs to the Bashkirs. They are as simple as sheep, and land can be got for almost nothing. Pahom thought, There now. With my 1,000 rubles, why should I get only 1,300 acres and saddle myself with the debt besides? If I take it out there, I can get more than 10 times more as land. much land. land. Pahom inquired land. how to get to the place, and as soon as the trader had left him, he prepared to go there. He left his wife to look after the homestead and started on his journey, taking his servant with him. They stopped at a town on their way and bought a case of tea, some wine, and other presents, as the trader had advised. On and on they went until they had gone more than 300 miles, and on the seventh day they came to a place where the Bashkirs had pitched their tents. It was all just as the trader had said. As soon as the Bashkirs saw Pahom, they came out of their tents and gathered around their visitor. An interpreter was found, and Pahom told them that he had come about some land. The Bashkirs seemed very glad. They took home and led him into one of the best tents where they made him sit on some down cushions placed on a carpet while they sat round him. They gave him tea and kumis and had a sheep killed and gave him mutton to eat. Bahom took presents out of his cart and distributed them among the Bashkirs and divided among them the tea. The Bashkirs were delighted. They talked a great deal among themselves and then told the interpreter to translate. They wished to tell you said the interpreter, that they like you, and that it is our custom to do all we can to please a guest and to repay him for his gifts. You have given us presents. Now tell us which of the things we possess please you best, that we may present them to you. What pleases me best here, answered Pahom, is your land. Our land is crowded, and the soil is exhausted, but you have plenty of land, and it is good land. I never saw the like of it. The interpreter translated, the Bashkirs talked among themselves for a while. Pahom could not understand what they were saying, but saw that they were much amused and that they shouted and laughed. Then a man in a large fox fur cap appeared on the scene. They all became silent and rose to their feet. The interpreter said, This is our chief. Pahom immediately fetched the best pieces of cloth and five pounds of tea and offered these to the chief. The chief accepted them and seated himself in the place of honor. The Bashkirs at once began telling him something. The chief listened for a while, then made a sign with his head for them to be silent, and addressing himself to Pahom, said in Russian, Well, let it be so. Choose whatever piece of land you like. We have plenty of it. Pahom thought, How can I take as much as I like? I must get a deed to make it secure, or else they may say it's yours, and afterwards take it away. He said aloud, Thank you for your kind words. You have much land, and I only want a little. But I should like to be sure which bit is mine. Could it not be measured and made over to me? Life and death are in God's hands. You good people give it to me, but your children might wish to take it away again. You are quite right, said the chief. We will make it over to you. Pahom continued, I heard that a trader has been here, and that you gave him a little land, too, and signed title deeds to that effect. I would like to have it done in the same way. The chief understood. Yes, 
he replied. That can be done quite easily. We have a scribe, and we will go to town with you and have the deed properly sealed. And what will be the price? Our price is always the same, 1,000 rubles a day. Pahom did not understand. A day? What measure is that? How many acres would that be? The chief said, We do not know how to reckon it out. We sell it by the day. As much as you can go round on your feet in a day is yours. And the price is 1,000 rubles a day. Pahom was surprised. But in a day you can get around a large amount of land. The chief laughed. It will all be yours, but there is one condition. If you don't return on the same day to the spot from where you started, your money is lost. But how am I to mark the way that I have gone? We will go to any spot you like and stay there. You must start from that spot and make your round taking a spade with you. Wherever you think necessary, make a mark. At every turning, dig a hole and pile up the turf. Then afterwards, we will go round with the plow from hole to hole. You may make as large a circuit as you please, but before the sun sets, you must return to the place you started from. All the land you cover will be yours. Pahom was delighted. It was decided to start early next morning. They talked a while, and after drinking some more kumis and eating some more mutton, they had tea again. And then the night came on. They gave Pahom a feather bed to sleep on, and the Bashkirs dispersed for the night, promising to assemble the next morning at daybreak and ride out before sunrise to the appointed spot. Pahom lay on the feather bed but could not sleep. He kept thinking about the land. What a large tract I will mark off. I can easily do 35 miles in a day. The days are long now, and within a circuit of 35 miles, what a lot of land there will be. I will sell the poor land or let it to peasants, but I'll pick out the best and farm it. I will buy two ox teams and hire two more laborers. About 150 acres will be plow land, and I will pasture cattle on the rest. Pahom lay awake all night and dozed off only just before dawn. Hardly were his eyes closed when he had a dream. He thought he was lying in that same tent and heard somebody chuckling outside. He wondered who it could be, and rose and went out, and he saw the Bashkir chief sitting in front of the tent, holding his sides and rolling about with the laughter. Going near to the chief, Pahom asked, What are you laughing at? But he saw that it was no longer the chief, but the trader who had recently stomped at his house and had told him about the land. Just as Pahom was going to ask, Have you been here long? He saw that it was not the trader, but the peasant who had come up from the Volga long ago to Pahom's old home. Then he saw that it was not the peasant either, but the devil himself, with hoofs and horns sitting there and chuckling, and before him lay a man barefoot, prostrate on the ground, with only trousers and a shirt on. And Pahom dreamt that he looked more attentively to see what sort of a man it was that was lying there, and he saw that the man was dead, and that it was himself. He awoke horror-struck, but then said to himself, What things one does dream. Looking round, he saw through the open door that the dawn was breaking, and thought, It's time to wake them up. We ought to be starting. He got up, roused his servant, who was sleeping in the cart, told him to harness the horse, and went to call the Bashkirs. It's time to go to measure the land. 
The Bashkirs rose and assembled, and the chief came too. Then they began drinking kumis again and offered Pahom some tea, but he would not wait. If we are to go, let us go. It is high time. The Bashkirs got ready, and they all started, some mounted on horses and some in carts. Pahom drove in his own small cart with his servant and took a spade with him. As the morning red began to kindle, they went to the top of a small hill, dismounted from their carts and horses, and gathered in one spot. The chief came up to Pahom and stretched out his arms towards the plain. See, all this, as far as your eye can reach, is ours. You may have any part of it you like. Pahom's eyes glistened. It was all virgin soil as flat as the palm of your hand, as black as a seed of a poppy, and in the hollows different kinds of grasses grew chest high. The chief took off his fox fur cap, placed it on the ground, and said, This will be the mark. Start from here and return here again. All the land you go round shall be yours. Pahom took out his money and put it on the cap. Then he took off his outer coat, put a little bag of bread into his vest pocket, tied a flask of water to his belt, took the spade from his servant, and stood ready to start. He considered for some moments which way he had better go. It was tempting everywhere, but concluded, No matter, I will go towards the rising sun. He turned his face to the east, stretched himself, and waited for the sun to appear above the rim. The sun's rays had hardly flashed above the horizon before Pahom started out, carrying the spade over his shoulder. At first, he walked neither slowly nor quickly. After having gone a thousand yards, he stopped, dug a hole, and placed pieces of turf one on another to make it more visible. Then he went on, and now that he had walked off his stiffness, he quickened his pace. After a while, he dug another hole. Pahom looked back. The hill could be distinctly seen in the sunlight with the people on it and the glittering tires of the cartwheels. At a rough guess, Pahom concluded that he had walked three miles. It was growing warmer. He took off his vest, flung it across his shoulder, and went on again. It had grown quite warm now. He looked at the sun. It was time to think of breakfast. The first shift is done, but there are four in a day, and it is too soon yet to turn. But I will just take off my boots. He sat down, took off his boots, stuck them into his belt, and went on. It was easy walking now. I will go on for another three miles and then turn to the left. This spot is so fine, it would be a pity to lose it. The further one goes, the better the land seems. He went straight on for a while, and when he looked round, the hill was scarcely visible, and the people on it looked like black ants, and he could just see something glistening there in the sun. Ah, I have gone far enough in this direction. It is time to turn. Besides, I am in a regular sweat and very thirsty. He stopped, dug a large hole, and heaped up pieces of turf. Next, he untied his flask, had a drink, and then turned sharply to the left. He went on and on. The grass was high, and it was very hot. Pahom began to grow tired. He looked at the sun and saw that it was noon. Well, I must have a rest. He sat down and ate some bread and drank some water, but he did not lie down, thinking that if he did, he might fall asleep. After sitting a little while, he went on again. At first he walked easily, the food had strengthened him, but it had become terribly hot and he felt sleepy. Still he went on, thinking, an hour to suffer? 
a lifetime to live. He went a long way in this direction also and was about to turn to the left again when he perceived a damp hollow. Oh, it would be a pity to leave that. Flash would do well there. So he went on past the hollow and dug a hole on the other side of it before he turned the corner. The home looked back towards the hill. The heat made the air hazy. It seemed to be quivering, and through the haze the people on the hill could scarcely be seen. Ah, I have made the sides too long. I must make this one shorter. And he went along the third side, stepping faster. He looked at the sun. It was nearly halfway to the horizon, and he hadn't yet done two miles on the third side of the square. He was still ten miles from the goal. No, though it will make my land lopsided, I must hurry back in a straight line now. I might go too far, and as it is, I have a great deal of land. So Pahom dug a hole in a hurry, then headed straight toward the hill. Pahom went straight towards the hill, but he now walked with difficulty. The heat was oppressive. His bare feet were cut and bruised, and his legs began to fail. He longed to rest, but it was impossible if he meant to get back before sunset. The sun waits for no man, and it was sinking lower and lower. Oh dear, he thought, if only I have not blundered trying for too much. What if I am too late? He looked towards the hill and at the sun. He was still far from his goal, and the sun was already near the rim. Pahom walked on and on. It was very hard walking, but he went quicker and quicker. He pressed on, but was still far from the place. He began running, threw away his coat, his boots, his flask, and his cap, and kept only the spade which he used as a support. What will I do? I've tried to get too much and ruin the whole affair. I can't get there before the sun sets. And this fear made him still more breathless. Pahom went on running, his soaking shirt and trousers stuck to him, and his mouth was parched. His chest was working like a blacksmith's bellows. His heart was beating like a hammer, and his legs were giving away as if they did not belong to him. Pahom was seized with terror, lest he should die of the strain. Though afraid of death, he could not stop. After having run all that way, they will call me a fool if I stop now. And he ran on and on and drew near and heard the Bashkirs yelling and shouting to him, and their cries inflamed his heart still more. He gathered his last strength and ran on. The sun was close to the rim and cloaked in mist, looked large and red as blood. Now, yes, now it was about to set. The sun was quite low, but he was also quite near his aim. Pahom could already see the people on the hill waving their arms to hurry him up. He could see the fox fur cap on the ground and the money on it and the chief sitting on the ground holding his sides. And Pahom remembered his dream. He thought, there is plenty of land, but will God let me live on it? I have lost my life. I have lost my life. I will never reach that spot. Pahom looked at the sun, which had reached the earth. One side of it had already disappeared. With all his remaining strength, he rushed on, bending his body forward so that his legs could hardly follow fast enough to keep him from falling. Just as he reached the hill, it suddenly grew dark. He looked up. The sun had already set. He gave a cry. All my labor has been in vain. 
He was about to stop, but he heard the Bashkirs still shouting, and remembered that though to him, from below, the sun seemed to have set, they on the hill could still see it. He took a long breath and ran up the hill. It was still light there. He reached the top and saw the cap. Before it sat the chief laughing and holding his sides. Again, Pahom remembered his dream, and he uttered a cry. His legs gave way beneath him. He fell forward and reached the cap with his hands. Ah, that's a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief. He has gained much land. Pahom's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Pahom was dead. The Bashkirs clicked their tongues to show their pity. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to be in and buried him. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Ha, 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 ha.